Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 as we continue our focus on Peter's command to resist the devil. Resist our adversary Satan, who is a fallen angel and is described as a prowling lion. The last two sermons focused especially on the methods or devices that Satan uses to tempt the soul to sin and to destroy and harm the peace and the comfort and the happiness of the believer to keep us in a sad and doubting condition. And the sermon before those two was talking about the nature and the history of Satan himself. And those three sermons were under the larger heading of Satan's life. Well, this sermon's title and larger heading is Satan's Leash. Satan's Leash, that's the title of the sermon. Let's read our text, and then I will explain a little bit more by way of introduction. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're reading verses 8 through 10. Jesus Christ says through the Apostle Peter, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The title Satan's Leash is given to communicate that there are certain things that Satan cannot do. We're looking at the limits and the limitations of Satan, who is a leashed lion. He may be a lion, but he is a leashed lion, and he can only go so far and only do so much as a creature, as an angel, as an adversary of Christ's people. And though we should not underestimate his cunning or his power, neither should we live in an unjustifiable fear of Satan himself. So consider with me by way of outline seven points to understand the leash, the limits and limitations of the lion known as Lucifer. Number one, consider God's decree and providence. God's decree and providence. All things great and small, microscopic and macroscopic, everything takes place under the control of God who has decreed all things. God has foreordained foreordained all things whatsoever comes to pass. The decree of God is God foreordaining, decreeing all things whatsoever comes to pass. So God has decreed all things. In one eternal act, in one simple decree, God decrees everything. But when God decrees all things which come to pass, 
he does not decree that they all happen in the same way. Many things in God's decree are decreed by permission. That is, God permits them to happen, but by permission we do not mean approval. Rather, we simply mean that God does not prevent them. God allows them to happen. He does not prevent them from happening. So in God's decree, which encompasses all things, there are certain things which come to pass because God does not prevent them from happening. Rather, he permits them to happen. And such is the case of the fall of Satan and some of the angels. Such is the case of the fall of man that God decreed to permit. He decreed not to stop, not to restrain those falls. And all of the sin and all of the wickedness of men and angels ever since also takes place by God's permission. God has decreed all things, sin included, the fall of angels and men included, but he decrees them by way of permission. And God decrees them in such a way that he not, it's not a bare permission, it's not just a, well, let's let it happen, but rather God permits it in such a way that he bounds and limits and guides the flow of, of man's sin and the sin of angels to the ends for which he has created and permitted such things, namely for his own glory. Because his mercy and grace, as well as his justice, are brought to the fore as among the fallen mass of humanity, God chooses some to be redeemed and to be saved. And so we praise his mercy and his grace. And those who do not come to Jesus Christ are left in their sins, and therefore his justice is praised and exalted as he condemns the wicked and punishes them. So God decreed all things. He permitted man's fall and the fall of angels. He bounds and limits their sin, the course of their sin, in such a way that it terminates in the praise of his grace and the praise of his justice. And what we need to remember as God's people is that however cunning and active Satan may be as a prowling lion, God has decreed all things from beginning to end, and as God sovereignly moves all things from beginning to end, that's what we call his providence. As his providence guides the, the unfolding of his decree so that all things terminate in the ends or end for which God has created and, and ordained them. Now, we know the end. We are not ignorant of the end. We know that Satan will be thrown down fully and finally, and all who are loyal to him, men and devils, will be tormented with him forever and ever in the lake of fire. Because we know the end, and because we know that God is guiding, we know the end that God has decreed, and we know that God is guiding all things toward that end by his providence, therefore we should live with peace and confidence knowing that there is a border and a limit set on the extent to which Satan can wreak havoc in this world and on the church of Jesus Christ. What do we sing in a mighty fortress is our God? For lo, his doom is sure. The decree of God and his providence guarantee to us that he is guiding all things and therefore Satan will be defeated and our adversary will be destroyed. And Satan, until that time, 
cannot do anything outside of the decree and providence of God or against the decree and the providence of God. And all that God permits Satan to do by not preventing him, God, all of it, limits and orders it so that it accomplishes ultimately God's own purposes. This is what Peter taught the crowds at Pentecost when he said that you, the Jews and the authorities, you have lawlessly and sinfully and wickedly and unjustly crucified and murdered Jesus. And then he also says, and this is what God had foreordained and determined such that it would save his people from their sins in a triumphant reversal. We need to remember, we need to be reminded that there's one only true and living God, and his name is I am that I am, Jehovah, not Satan. God's decree and providence rule the world, and God's decree and providence rule our adversary. Secondly, consider with me Jesus' victory and Satan's binding. Jesus' victory and Satan's binding. God's decree and providence are big picture factors, foundational factors that help us to recognize the limits of Satan's ability to do us harm. If we zoom in more specifically, we will see that in the world, as events take place in the history of the world, Satan is not the only one at work to accomplish a plan. He's not the only one with designs. He's not the only one trying to accomplish something. In fact, from the beginning of human history, from the beginning of the history of the world, in Genesis chapter 3, we are told something extremely significant. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, from the first dawning moments of history, God reveals something. He reveals that the offspring of Eve will one day crush the head of the serpent. Satan had acted to enslave man and capture him. And he had accomplished that. But God says that there will be a man who will overpower Satan and defeat him. Who is that man? It is no mystery. It is a mystery no longer. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so consider with me, the, the unfolding of human history is the awaiting of the seed who will destroy Satan. And then when he arrives, Jesus Christ, it's Satan versus Jesus. The battle begins in earnest. And throughout the Gospels, this is precisely what we see. Satan attacking Jesus in every way that he possibly can, as intensely as he can. Consider the battle between Jesus and Satan. First John tells us that Jesus came to undo the works of the devil, and that is precisely what he took on flesh to do. Satan tempted Jesus, indirectly and directly. When Satan tempted Jesus directly, Jesus never yielded, not for a moment. Jesus did not sin in body or soul, internally or externally. In us, even our inclinations, even the first motions towards sin are sinful. Sinful desires, sinful thoughts, sinful appetites, 
all kinds of sin and the corruption of our nature and then acts of sin that flow from those habits, that flow from that nature, that flow from the sin within us in our hearts. We have much to repent of, much to fight against. But Jesus, when tempted in every way, never gave in. He never sinned. He never had a sinful thought. He never had a sinful desire. He never spoke a sinful word. He never did a sinful deed ever, despite great temptation. Perfect victory. Remember, this is not like the the climax of of a film where the bad guy gets a punch, and then the good guy gets a punch, and then the bad guy gets a punch, and then the good guy gets a punch. This is, no, record for Jesus, 100% victory, zero sin. Record for Satan, 0% victory. No, nothing accomplished against Jesus. We're told that Satan entered Judas, and Judas went and betrayed Jesus to the authorities. So we know that it was by Satan's activity that Jesus is betrayed and handed over. And we know that it's by Satan's activity that the rulers did what they did. The hearts of the Jews desired to condemn him falsely, to accuse him and condemn him wrongfully. And they did that. And we know that Satan was at work in the hearts of Herod and Pilate. These are governors. These are are authorities whose job it is to defend the innocent and to punish the wicked. And what do they do? They do the opposite. As they fear men, they refuse to uphold justice. They refuse to protect innocence. They do all that is wicked and unjust, Pilate and Herod, because Satan was at work. Satan was at work in the hearts of the soldiers to mock and to beat Jesus, to physically abuse him, even as the Jews themselves had done also, to whip him, to press the crown of thorns down upon his brow, to punch him, to ridicule him, to to robe him in false robes and to make fun of him. We're told that one of the criminals by Jesus' side also derided him. We're told that those who passed by wagged their heads. That means they were ashamed of him. They were astonished. They They were disappointed. That's even an almost a positive way to think about it. They're, they're just saying, this, this man is horrible. He's the worst of everything. Look at him now. What was all of this? It was Satan assaulting Jesus. It was the most intense temptation that Jesus had to endure because it was all designed to provoke Jesus to lash out in anger and sin all designed to provoke him to retaliate to vengeance and violence against those who are unjustly mistreating him. Satan wants Jesus to say, enough, enough, I'm not going to do this. For you ridiculous and wicked and ungrateful people, don't you know who I am? And destroy all of the people that are mistreating him and mocking him, and failing to give him the glory that is due to his name. It was a temptation to retaliate, a temptation to vengeance and violence on the part of Jesus. And indeed, Satan brought Jesus to death, and and Satan put Jesus to death in an apparent victory. But, I say apparent with a capital A, because there was so much that Satan did not know and did not understand. Would you please turn with me? to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes the Davidic Psalm. Where the enemies of the king of Israel surround him. The enemies of the king of Israel oppress him. And the king waits for deliverance. This is not God turning his back on God. This is the son saying, when will I have victory over my enemies? They're oppressing me. Fight for me. Defend me. As Jesus refuses to revile those who reviled him as he refuses to retaliate against those who are mistreating him. But we need to understand that when Satan perpetrated all of this and orchestrated all of this, he, he did not understand what he was doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. The Apostle Paul says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. A secret and hidden wisdom which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. That's Satan and the demonic powers. For if they had understood this secret and hidden wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There was a secret and hidden wisdom of God decreed before the ages which none of the rulers of this age understood. Satan did not understand that Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord, and I have power to take it back up again. Satan did not understand that Jesus' death was Jesus laying down his own life for his sheep as a sacrifice, not in defeat, but victory. Satan did not understand that Jesus chose to drink the cup of suffering and agony. Satan did not understand that the only reason that Jesus was on that cross was because he willed to be on that cross by permitting all of this sin and all of this just injustice against himself. If Satan thinks, I put him on this cross, which Satan did think that, he could not have been more wrong. When Satan brought about the death of Jesus through this horrible and unjust murder on Friday, he did not understand what would happen on Sunday morning. As he brings the body of the Christ to death and the soul of the Christ into the, into the realm of the dead for the first time, what happens? The separation of the soul from the body is reversed on Sunday morning. Of the body that did not see corruption and the soul that rises from darkness into light is reunited for the first time. And Satan's power is suddenly challenged and dissolved. And suddenly there's now a man with an incorruptible body now there is immortality existing in this world. There is eternal life in this world through the very one that Satan had just put to death. Unstoppable, unfading immortality now lives and abides in the world of corruption and death. What happened? It's described in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
Jesus defeated Satan. He destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Satan, why did you put him to death? (laughs) Because he did not know the secret and hidden wisdom of God. And brothers and sisters, this is a great comfort to us. We who have only begun to taste that immortality. We have begun to taste that immortality in our souls through regeneration, through the new birth, as it's at work in us already. Our great adversary and enemy, Satan, has been defeated. But there's more. As a result of this victory, Satan is said to be bound. In Revelation chapter 20, Satan is bound in the abyss with a great chain for a thousand years, the time between Christ's ascension and his resurrection or his uh, return in the same manner, excuse me. And so Satan is said to be bound until Christ returns. But Peter calls him prowling and active. How can that be? Well, it means that there is a leash, there is a limit, there is a limitation on the extent to which Satan can do harm. Satan can only do so much and he can only do it for so long because when Christ returns, he will return to bring all things to conclusion and consummation. Satan is defeated and he is bound. The strong man is tied up in his own fortress and his own goods are plundered as he can do nothing but watch. You need not fear the lion on the leash because Jesus has defeated him. And this is not, again, you score a blow, I score a blow. This is not you hit, I hit. This is total and complete victory. Unstoppable, perfect accomplishment of everything that Jesus intended. He did his work. He undid the works of the devil and he prevailed. Thirdly, and we'll begin to move more quickly in the rest of the points. Consider with me Jesus' intercession. Jesus continues to act on our behalf as our prophet and priest and king. And because of his intercession for us, we are protected and preserved. We read precious words in Luke chapter 22 verses 31 and 32, where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Here are the precious words. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Peter knows, he didn't understand it then, but we see that it guaranteed that Peter's faith would not fail because Jesus then says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You will be assaulted. In fact, you will fall in temptation. You will fall hard. You will fall deep. But you will turn. You will be restored. Why? Because Jesus prayed for him. Because Jesus intercedes for him. And the scriptures tell us that though Satan is our accuser, Jesus is our advocate. And our advocate is infinitely stronger than our accuser. The power of Christ's resurrection is sufficient to give us new life in our souls, to regenerate us, and to bring us to him in faith. 
and the power of Christ's intercession is abundantly sufficient to preserve us in that faith and to bring us to himself at the last. Do not be afraid. Jesus Christ is your advocate and he intercedes for you. Fourthly, Satan can accuse but not condemn. Satan can accuse but not condemn. We covered this last week, so I will only mention it briefly. But I I want to bring back the distinction between being convicted of something and being condemned for it. To be convicted of a crime means that your guilt has been established. You are guilty. But to be condemned is to have a sentence passed upon you because you are guilty. Satan can accuse us and we can be convicted and found guilty of sin, but he cannot condemn us. He cannot damn us to hell. He cannot declare upon us a sentence because he's not the judge. And not only that, why is it that he cannot condemn us? It's because of God's covenant with us. I will remember their sin no more. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has covenanted and he cannot lie. He cannot change his mind. He cannot deny himself. He cannot fail to keep his word. He cannot break his covenant. And so we ought to be convicted for our sins and have a conscience sensitive to sin. But Satan the accuser goes far beyond that to condemn us. And our consciences at times do the same. And so we need to, when we sin and when the law of God accuses us, then we do indeed acknowledge our guilt and repent of our sin. But we are not condemned because we are forgiven. Our sins are washed away and we ought to be refreshed by the promises of the gospel for all those who cry for mercy in the name of Jesus Christ. And we ought to enjoy the freedom of justification. Enjoy the forgiveness of your sins. Enjoy the righteousness of Christ attributed to you because you believe in him. Rejoice in that salvation. You cannot be condemned, and you don't have to listen to the accuser when he condemns you because it's simply a lie. Fifthly, Satan can tempt but not compel. Satan can tempt but not compel. How do you resist the prowling lion? There's a very freeing truth, a very liberating thought that we need to keep close to our hearts. And it is this, that Satan can tempt us, but he cannot compel us. And by compel, I mean to force, to force you in such a way that you cannot do otherwise. Your will is bypassed. To compel has been helpfully illustrated in this way. Your older brother does this to you. I have two older brothers. Uh, they compel you to hit yourself. <laughs> My, I'm not choosing. Well, right now I am. In that scenario, I'm not choosing. I'm not willing to hit myself. I'm being compelled to do it. Satan can't do that. He can entice you to sin. He can tempt you to sin but he cannot compel your will. He cannot force your will. He can attract you and entice you and tempt you, but he cannot bypass your will. 
How do you resist? Proverbs 1 verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. You say no. That's the liberating reality. He can't force me. I can say no. I can always say no. Charles Spurgeon famously said, learn to say no. It will be of more use to you than to be able to read Latin. You could know the entirety of the Latin language and have access to all kinds of classical and theological and government texts from history, and that would be delightfully useful. And yet, knowing how to and being able to say no will be of far greater use than all of that. And like I said last week, communion with God is a way to resist temptation. And so when tempted to sin, you you pray through temptation until you pray out of temptation. You say no, and then you say no again, and then you say no, and then you say no again until the temptation passes. You pray through it and you pray out of it. You resist. Saying no is resisting. Saying no is fighting back. And the Apostle Paul says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common and that God provides an escape. You can always say no. Satan can tempt you, but he cannot compel you. So my son, when sinners entice you, do not consent. There are people who feel powerless against sin and they feel trapped by sin. But there is a certain freedom in realizing that you just have to say no. If you find, I don't want to say no, then there's heart work that must be done. There are desires and appetites and inclinations that need to be repented of and mortified and sanctified. But even after acknowledging those things, at the end of the day, you choose to act. You make the choice, however enticed, however inclined your heart may be to a certain sin. At the end of the day, you consent. If, if your consent could be bypassed, you would not be guilty. There are, there are crimes committed against people against their consent, and we do not hold such persons guilty. They are victims of, of wickedness, not perpetrators of wickedness. But when it comes to sins that we commit, we do consent. But we must say no, because Satan can tempt you, but he cannot compel you. He'll make you feel like you can't say no, but you can. And it's a very freeing thought. But you have to do it. Don't, don't wait for it to happen. You have to say no and run away. Sixthly, he can frighten but not follow through. It is very probable, we said this at the beginning of our study of Peter uh, 10 years ago, it's very probable that Peter is writing during the reign of Nero, whom you very likely know committed terrible atrocities against Christians, not just against Christians, but especially against Christians, executing them and putting them to death in horrific and painful and shameful ways, utterly shameful and painful deaths for Christians because they are Christians. 
And Peter says in our text in verse 9, he says, resist Satan, firm in your faith. And then he says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, certainly it's true that all Christians experience the fight against sin and temptation throughout the world. That's common. But this probably has more in view the, the extent of Roman persecution against Christians. That throughout the world, Christians are being pressured to deny Jesus. That Christians are being pressured to deny the faith, to give it up, to reject Jesus, to stop being Christians. And Peter is saying, don't give in. Don't give in to those pressures. Other people are facing this too. Resist him, firm in your faith. But what this means is that if, if Nero's persecution is in the background, Peter wants them to know that however frightening that persecution may be, however frightening those threats may be, turn away from Christ or else, Satan can only do so much for so long. In fact, the farthest he can go is to destroy your body, but he cannot damage or destroy your soul. Jesus himself taught this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Christians are being threatened and frightened with assaults on their bodies, horrific deaths, painful and shameful executions, but Jesus said, and Jesus repeats through Peter here, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Other Christians are being pressured. Some of them are being put to death. All Christians are suffering this, but resist, be faithful unto death. Satan is therefore leashed in the sense that however much he may frighten Christians, turn away or else, turn away or else, however severe the persecution and suffering may be that he can inflict on us, all he can do is harm our bodies in this life, and that's all. But if you died under Nero because of Satan's activity, were you defeated? Revelation would say, no, you're not defeated at all. In fact, if you died... Faithful unto death, you're a victor. You're a conqueror. You've not been defeated, you've been delivered. You've not been defeated, you've won, you've prevailed. Because Satan can claw and maw the body, but he can't kill the soul. Do not be frightened. He cannot follow through. The worst he can do to me is shamefully and painfully put an end to the breathing of these lungs and the beating of this heart. That's it. Now, for us, that seems like so much, it doesn't it? And we're not diminishing the real pain and shame of such deaths. It's just recognizing the incomparable weight of glory that, that is after that and beyond that and above that, which is worth it. Satan can frighten but he cannot follow through. He can do nothing to prevent us from enjoying eternal life. Turn from Jesus. Or what? 
I'll kill your body. But to be faithful to Christ unto death is to have eternal life. You see, but he just wants you to think of Deny Jesus or I'll kill your body. Deny Jesus or I will hurt and harm you and maw and claw you and chew on you. You say, for how long? And then it's eternal life. That's the mind of the, the faith of the martyr. That's the faith of the martyr that rests in Christ, that rests in the glory of eternal life and the resurrection. Which brings us to our seventh point. He can disable, but not destroy. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus healed a woman whose body was bowed. It was, it was stuck in a bent condition in such a way that she could not straighten herself. It says in verse 11 of chapter 13, she had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And in verse 16 of the same chapter, Jesus says that Satan had bound her for those 18 years. Satan had inflicted this disability on this woman. We know that Job's physical suffering was precipitated by Satan. Paul calls the thorn in his flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me. One of the methods that Satan uses is to send disabling physical discomfort. For some of God's people, their physical suffering and even their disability is the result of Satan just being malicious, just being malevolent. It's Satan, but why? Because he wants you to curse God and die. He's tempting you to despair, lose your hope, give up your faith. He wants you to lash out in anger and discontentment. Like God said to, to Jonah twice, do you do well to be angry? Jonah gave in to the temptation. And those who suffer physical disability and, and pain are greatly tempted to anger and discontentment. Or there's temptation to relieve yourself, your physical discomforts, by an excess of the pursuit of pleasure through drugs, through alcohol, through other things. I will, I will seek pleasure for my body, disproportionate, sinful pleasure for my body because I am experiencing so much suffering in my body. You see, there's all kinds of temptations to sin associated with disability and physical suffering. Curse God and die, despair and lose faith, lash out in anger and discontentment, seek excess of pleasure. Why would he do this? Because he just hates. Am I saying that all sickness and disability, all intense mental illness, such things are the direct work of Satan? Not necessarily. Sometimes disability and mental illness and, and other kinds of, of suffering can be the result of one's own choices and one's own activities. We're not saying all of these things, but we are saying that some of these things are indeed by the activity of Satan. And for such persons who suffer disability and prolonged physical pain and, and great misery, Satan can, however much he disables and hurts the body, he can only temporarily do so. Even if he suffocates the body, he cannot destroy it. 
Even if Satan burns the body to cinders, he cannot destroy it. Even if Satan dissolves the body in water, in the oceans, in the deepest depths of the abyss, he cannot destroy it. Why? Because if, if Satan suffocates or burns or dissolves the body, wherever it, it is, wherever it dies, wherever it is buried or dissolved, the body is a seed planted in the earth. And there will come a day when those self-same bodies will rise in glory and immortality and Satan will not be able to touch those bodies in the least way. He will have no power against those bodies. Jesus has already risen from the dead. And so Satan can disable this body, but he cannot destroy it because if, even if he tries to burn it into the most minute atoms of physical existence, it will still just sprout again when Jesus returns. It's going to grow. It's unstoppable. Jesus has won and we will win in him. And so the victory of Jesus Christ and his resurrection gives us hope and it gives us joy even in the face of great pain and great distress and even in the face of the death of those who die in the Lord. When we think of those who die in the Lord, all of the grief and all of the pain and all of the loss is just on our part. And we rightly grieve and we rightly have pain and we rightly miss those persons and we rightly weep for them, for, their, for our loss of them. But we know that the body that is planted, the seed that is put into the earth, though it be ashes and dust, it will be raised in incorruptible glory and immortality. And when that day comes, it will be the beginning of our life in that body and it will be the end of Satan's freedom. Because on that same day, he and all his devils and all wicked men will be cast into the lake of fire forever. And Peter has been encouraging these Christians to think about their inheritance reserved for them, undefiled, perfect, reserved for you, untouched, unmarked, unstained. In conclusion, we've seen the limits and the limitations of Lucifer, the leashed lion. God's decree and providence control all things, Satan included. Christ has triumphed over him and bound him. Jesus intercedes for us and sustains our faith. Satan may accuse us, but he cannot condemn us. He may tempt us, but he cannot compel us. He may frighten us, but he cannot follow through. He may disable us, but he cannot destroy us. So resist him, firm in your faith, because Christ has conquered, and we are more than conquerors in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for what Jesus has done for us. We worship you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness to redeem us and to protect us. Jesus Christ, we love you. And we ask you to continue to intercede for us.
and to sustain our faith in the face of temptation, in the face of pain, in the face of persecution, in the face of the seductive currents of our culture, in the face of all manner of attack, help us. And we pray that you would defend us from the world and the flesh and the devil. We thank you that you have conquered, that you have limited, that you have bound, that you have overcome, that you have destroyed and defeated and undone. We praise you for all that you have done for us, Jesus Christ. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, who dwells in us and reassures us and assures us of your presence with us, your power in us, your protection over us, knowing that we are heard, we are loved, we are received, we are never turned away. Oh, Lord, our God, we love you. And we ask for your help and your blessing unto death, praying this in Jesus' name. Amen.